the 20th century proved itself to be one of the most deadliest centuries in human history. It's estimated that over 150 million people died through war. Countless millions of unborn children murdered in the 20th century. These statistics don't even account for violent crimes and murder that made their way through the headlines. Genocide, war, and holocaust mark the 20th century, a century of death. And as we think about that century, we think about the centuries that came before them, we even think about our own day, even this morning perhaps, as you opened your newspaper or flipped on your phone or turned on the news, it was as if it was a game. How many more died last night? I've commented on this often that the media in Baltimore almost, I don't know, seemed to keep their lights on through the violent crime that takes place in our city. Every day and every night we are confronted with headlines of violent crime, murder, and death. While it may be distant from most of us, we know that for many in this world, violence, murder, death is a part of everyday life. Everyday life. As we think about how bad the world is, As Christians, we want to think about it with a biblical worldview. In other words, we want to use what God has revealed in his word to help us think about the brokenness of the world that you and I live in. How are we as Christians to think about this violence? Where are we to attribute this source of violence? Thankfully, God has revealed in his word where this violence comes from. Where, in fact, murder comes from. It comes from our own broken hearts. Humanity, apart from God, is chaos. And this is what we see unfolding in the pages of Genesis. So I invite you this morning to turn to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be, over the next few weeks, covering a lot of territory. And... uh, I'm not going to occasion the time to read all of the texts uh, for time's sake. We'd be here well past noon if I did every week. And so you can be served in two ways. Number one, by reading ahead. We print in the bulletin what the text will be. So in the back of the bulletin, you'll see next week, we're going to be covering three chapters. Read those throughout the week devotionally. Think about them. Ask questions of them. And it will make the time uh, all the more meaningful when you gather. Uh, Secondly, um, I will be highlighting as I read some of these passages and key points uh, for us to get a sense of the point of the passage uh, and then try to fill in the rest via narrative. Well, friends, as we've been studying through this this book, uh, we've seen uh, that God is the creator. He's the one who created humanity in his image. And we know that God created us to rule with him, to to be vice regents, uh, to rule. He's a king and this was his kingdom. But 
As we saw, things went into chaos. As man, last week we saw in chapter 3, rebelled against God and fell into sin. And God promised that if man rebelled, that he would judge him. And we saw that because of man's sin, we were cast from the presence of God. The Bible is very clear that sinners cannot be in God's presence because he's holy. They have to be made holy in order for them to be in his presence. And we saw that God had a plan forward. And so in Genesis chapter 3, as God curses the serpent, Satan, for his role in casting humanity into chaos, he promised there in Genesis 3.15 that he would raise up a seed, a child, another from this woman, Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would have victory over this Satan, this evil one. And we saw that the promise would be fulfilled through the seed of Eve, his name being Jesus Christ, the one we've sang about today, the one that we worship today, the one who died as our representative, a new Adam, a second Adam. Where the first Adam fell and rebelled, the second Adam perfectly obeyed the Father and died the death. We deserve as sinners. We even see in the text this morning in Genesis chapter 5, in verse 23, or 29 rather, the hope that the seed would come soon. So in verse 29, we see Lamech as he names his son Noah. He says, out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. We'll think next week about how Noah is the second Adam here in Genesis and how Noah foreshadows Jesus. But even Noah failed. While he was a new Adam, he was not a better Adam. He was still a broken Adam as he willfully rebelled against God post the ark in the days after he rebelled and sinned against God. So as we think about this text this morning, we want to see that there is a glimmer of hope, although things go from bad to worse. In chapter 4 through 6, we will see that humanity is thrown into perversion and chaos and sin. It doesn't take humans very long to really pick up on sin and to spread it. Throughout humanity. And so this morning, as we begin to get into the text, I've summarized chapters 4 through 6 in this way. Although sin abounds in our fallen world, God is still faithfully calling a remnant to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ until Christ has the final victory. I want you to see this morning in our text. So if you have your Bibles open, I want you to see that chapter 4 and chapter 5 are parallel stories. Chapter 4 is the family line of Cain. Chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 6, is the family line of Seth. Two ways to live. Two ways. Either one, you can go your way and follow that family line and die. Or you can go God's way and live. And so this morning, uh, we're going to see uh, sort of what family are you tied to? What family are you closely resembling? Are you 
living life your way, the way of Cain? Or are you living God's way? So we'll see the way of Seth and his son Enoch. So this morning, if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 4 and verse 1. And again, I'm going to read just a section. We'll talk about it and then we'll move on. But I want you to see, again, we're going to see paralleled here, Cain up against Seth. Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, you will not be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, as we think about this text this morning, of course, we come upon a very familiar passage. In fact, if you were to survey even your lost friends, they might even know the story of Cain and Abel. A story of murder, jealousy, and revenge. We see the themes uh, displayed quite nicely throughout there. First, the setting is given to us, right? Uh, we see Adam and Eve. And I want you to see here, and parallel, I didn't read all the text, but, but if you notice here, look at how Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Compare that to the end of this chapter, verse 29, or verse 25 rather. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth was also born, his name was Enosh. Now as we think about the parallel here, first it seems as if in the very beginning here, as she sets the stage, that she has gotten this man, Cain, by the means, uh, by her own means. The language here seems to point to the fact that she has gotten this man with the help of the Lord. Now compare that to how she describes later in the, in the end of the, it's as if she's kind of grown a bit and seen that God is the one who is bringing about these offspring. 
Now, a lot of confusion is made about Cain, and particularly his offering that he gives, right? It seems to be that the center of the narrative is he's upset. Now, notice who he's upset with. He's upset with God. He's angry with God. And much has been made of whether God accepted Abel's offering because it was a blood offering versus Cain's because it was a grain offering. That's not the point of the story at all. The point of the story is that Cain's heart is not faithful before the Lord. Bruce Walkie says it this way, Cain brings some of the first fruits. There's no indication that these are the first of the best. Abel brings the best far uh, from the firstborn. He brings from the firstborn, rather. Cain's sin is mere tokenism. He took religion, but in his heart, he is totally dependent, uh, not dependent on God. So so in other words, we see in the text here that he's angry because God didn't... um, Praise him for his offerings. And the very fact that he's angry seems to point to the fact that his offering was unacceptable because he really didn't have faith in it. He was just going through the motions. He was just doing what he thought he needed to do to earn God's love rather than trusting in who God was. As you see in a very parallel way to the way his father was interrogated in the garden. We see here God begins to interrogate him. Why are you angry in verse 6? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Again, God here encourages him and reminds him that sin must be ruled over And sin was ruling his heart. And so God here is trying to help him understand. But for Cain, it was insufficient. For Cain, it was not enough. He had to have more. Now, we're not told really much about the details, but apparently there was strife among the brothers leading up to this. Even if we take this one event being the the tipping point for Cain, it surely did not warrant death on Abel's part. Jealousy is what fueled his soul. Cain was jealous that his brother was accepted over him. And this is going to be a particular theme in the book of Genesis as the younger will rule over the older. So Moses is introducing this theme that we will see in subsequent generations of the people of Israel. Where it's the youngest son, Joseph, who will be the leader over his people, uh, over God's people. In the midst of this, it is Cain's uh, response that is the point. Anger against God and anger against his brother. And it leads him to murder. We're told that he lures his younger brother out into the field and slaughters him. This isn't just knocking him over the head with with a rock or something of that sort. We see from the vividness of the text that there is blood literally pouring into the ground. A sufficient amount in which it's soaking up into the dirt. But the point of this entire story, as we begin to think about what God is teaching his people, is that what happens when you rebel against God is that you were cast from his presence. Notice again at the end of verse 14. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. Again, we see that theme that if you sin against God, if you rebel against God, you are cast from God's presence. You are pushed away from him. And so we see as his mom and dad were driven from the Garden of Eden and to the east, so he is driven from 
Eden to the east. Those who seek to go to live life their way are cast from God's presence. But even in the midst of this, I want you to see God's grace. We're told that he marks Cain with a tattoo. He marks him so that he will not die at the hand of another. Many scholars believe that this is Moses uh, subtly teaching the nation of Israel what or how, rather, they should handle cases of murder. You'll remember in the law, there's provisions given for a manslayer, that someone who commits murder is allowed to live in a city of refuge. We see some parallelism here between what Cain does, where he goes and builds cities and in cities of refuge, and he's allowed to live. God is merciful with him. He provides a protective grace. I want to just clearly point this theme out to you. In the book of Genesis, you will see God's divine election clearly on display. In other words, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. He chose one brother over another. And we see here a, a parallel to that where he chooses Abel and not Cain. Where Abel is accepted and Cain is rejected. But here's the thing you want to that, that I don't want you to miss. God still blesses even when we sin. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. It's part of God's goodness and his grace. The Apostle Paul says so that it might lead us to salvation. You know, it's so fascinating the way you and I deal in retribution. Often our retribution doesn't fit the crime. Something happens, you know, something, someone hurts us and we, we just like, we lose it. Notice God's restraint and his love and his grace, even with a murderer. He doesn't kill him. I mean, he deserves death, the death penalty for murdering another, but God does it. He's gracious towards him. He's, he's kind, as he will be with Esau. God may hate Esau, but by God, I mean, he sure does bless him. It makes him into a great nation and a great people. You know, for you and I, we need to really think a little harder about God's character and the way he deals with sinners. Well, because we would appreciate God to deal with us in the same way. He is gracious towards sinners, even in our sin. Well, we see the passage is really pointing us to the way forward. Even the Apostle John uh, uses this story to teach us not to hate others. He says this, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Listen to this. John's very clear. He doesn't mince words. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But in this morning, is there a fellow believer who you struggle to love? Friend, that's the way of Cain. 
Jude warns us in this way, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. You see, the reason we hate is because we want to gain. The reason we, we despise others is because we want, to, we want to somehow gain maybe notoriety, maybe a name, maybe some sort of position or power we hate. We despise. Is there someone that you hate this morning? Friend, confess that to Christ and run from that. Friend, you cannot be a believer in Jesus Christ and hate others. The Bible is so clear on this fact. It's not gray. And so this morning, if you claim the name of Christ and you hate a particular people group, a particular race, uh, perhaps someone's religious um, thinking. Now, you wouldn't use the word hate, but you wouldn't be in the same room with them or even in the same conversation. Friend, as Christians, we are to be known for our love for one another, not our murderous thoughts. Remember what Jesus taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. If you hate you have committed murder in your heart. Friend, let us not go the way of Cain, for the way of Cain ends in death and separation from God. As we'll see, as verses 17 through 24 begin to unfold, we see that Cain begins to reproduce. And what happens when humanity reproduces is they tend to reproduce an image of themselves. In other words, uh, things go from bad to worse. And we're told that Cain begins to have children. And I just want to spotlight a few things. Uh, the point is that things are getting worse in the line of Cain. There is no hope. There, there cannot be the seed that's going to save the world from the line of Cain. Notice a couple things. First, verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. And we might read over that and say, ah, okay, whatever. But there's a point. In other words, he began... To sin against God. And as we go down this line of Lamech, we begin to see here in verse 23 that he says to his wives, Ada and Zela, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You get the picture here? Some, some young man just sort of smacked him. And what does that young man get? But death. 77 times over. In other words, vengeance and evil. Increasing wickedness. You know, it's interesting in this passage, we're told that from the line of Cain came uh, those who built great cities, who played great music and... Um, Bruce Walkie has this really helpful line. Cain's lineage is symbolic of human culture with great civilization and no God. And that's the way of Cain. Or as Augustine said, Cain was the firstborn who belonged to the city of men. Abel belonged to the city of God. In other words, you see, Christians have for since the beginning believe that there's two groups of people. There are those who are going God's way and those who are going their own way. And the way of Cain is exemplified here in his, his grandson who's murdering people because they struck him. 
civilization with no hope. In the cruelty here of Lamech, we are left to conclude that there is no hope of a seed that will come. No child will be born from this line that has any hope. And thus is why we have verse 25. Adam and his wife had another child, and they named him Seth. But this child was unlike Cain. He was one who was righteous, one who would lead in righteousness. This is why, notice in verse 26, to Seth was born was also born, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You, you see, the, the author here, Moses, is, is helping us understand that there is a glimmer of hope through this line. That although sin was increasing, God still had a remnant. God still had a small promise that he would fulfill this great promise that someone from this woman, from Eve, would crush the head of that serpent. Well, as chapter 5 unfolds before this, what we see in chapter 5 then is really that if we live God's way, we will live. And this is, of course, exemplified in the notorious one in verse 21. Look at verse 21. One of the descendants of Seth, a Sethite, his name was Enoch. And Enoch, in verse 22, walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. We see in this passage that Enoch faithfully followed. He walked with God. This is the similar language that we see showing up in chapter 3 when God was walking in the cool of the day. The idea of walking in the Bible is a characteristic of one's life. He lived with God. He communed with God. He was in relationship with him. If you were to count up the children here, he's the seventh from Seth, which is meant to parallel the seventh from Cain, which was Lamech, that vengeful one, that evil one. We see paralleled here. In the lineage of Seth, a godly one, a righteous one, he reflected the righteousness of his, of his great-great-grandfather, Seth. And so the story here is really not about Cain so much, but about God's purpose. Salheimer says it this way, The story is not about Eve's hope in Cain, but in Abel. True to the plot of the remaining narratives in Genesis, Cain, the older brother, does not stand to inherit the blessing, but rather the younger son. It is God himself who provides another seed through yet another son. As I pointed out a few weeks ago, if you see, the entire book of Genesis is organized around these uh, genealogies. You know, it's so fascinating. I bet I'm probably going to call you out because I do the same. When I'm in my Bible and I'm reading in my Bible plan, a lot of times it's easy to skip over the genealogies. It's so-and-so begat so-and-so. And we just go, we're just like, oh my goodness, this is too much. But if you rightly understand Genesis 3.15, there's a reason why every one of those ge genealogies is in the Bible. Because there is a promise that God is unfolding. The very fact that a child has been born, the very fact that another son has been raised up, God's plan is unfolding before their eyes. And so we see here this righteous Enoch is the one who walked with God in the fallenness of the world in all of life's experience, he continued to persevere 
in walking with God. Bruce Walkey says this, Enoch's, Enoch's life affirmed that those who walk with God in this fallen world will experience life, not death, as the last word. Enoch walked with God and he was not. We even see later in the genealogy that the son of Methuselah is named Lamech. Again, to parallel that this is the righteous line, this is the holy line, this is the one who will bring the seed. As I pointed out at the beginning of the sermon in verse 29, we see that the righteous Lamech has hope. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What is he describing there but the curse, right? Uh, Cursed be the ground because of you, Adam. Because you sin, you shall toil, you shall work, you shall strive all the days of your life. And you see Lamech here, a different Lamech than the evil one, the righteous one. Here in verse 29 is having hope in the seed that is to come. He believed that Noah was a Messiah. The one who would save them from the curse. Who would, the one who would deal the death blow against that ancient serpent. Well, unfortunately, as we have already noted, Noah turned out not to be much of a savior at all. While he saved his family and was, as we'll see in verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Noah was still a sinner in need of a savior. There still was a need for a righteous one to come. But back to Enoch for a moment. Enoch's life is, for you and I, one that we should exemplify. The New Testament authors often exemplify him. For example, the author of Hebrews in, 11, in chapter 11 and verse 5 says this, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he had taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Friend, do you want to please God in your life? Go his way. Stop going your own way. You know, the New Testament paints the way is the way of Christ. Gaharis Voss says it this way, where communion with God has been restored, their deliverance from death is bound to follow. For as Christians, we put our hope in Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, who died the death we deserve. And through him, there will be victory over sin and death. And you can please God. It's by faith that they believed. Well, as the chapter concludes and continues, we are introduced to Noah. And in the subsequent verses, in the beginning of verse 6, it really goes with this narrative. Uh, It really uh, lends itself to to fitting here at the end of chapter 5 as a way to not only conclude, but also introduce. A way to wrap up the line of Seth by introducing the need for annihilation of the world. I want to read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, so... Follow along there. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord God said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh. Shall, his days shall be 120 years. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, they were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man that was, was great on the earth, and that the intent of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, if you, if you plug this into the end, you begin to see the point of the passage quite clearly. That if you go God's way, the righteous way, there is hope of deliverance, hope of salvation. There's, there's hope. And it was going to be through this line that there was hope that those who would live God's way would live and not die. God is about to kill everybody because they were living life their own way. But there was one. Always one. You remember when Abraham meets the Lord? And just before the, the, the angel of the Lord goes and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleads with them. Lord, will you save the city if there's 50 righteous? I'll save the city. Will you save the city if there's 25 righteous? Right? And he goes down and there was only five. A remnant. You see, God is always at work saving his people. Fulfilling his promises. We see here in the beginning of chapter 6 that things do go from bad to worse. Things are thrown into utter chaos. Now, this is probably one of the most debated passages in all of Genesis. And, friend, I am not going to solve your solutions this morning. Uh, but I want to point out a few things. Number one, uh, there's a lot of question about who these sons of God are in verse 2. And who the Nephilim are in verse 4. Scholars have been debating this. Um, since the 2nd century B.C., since Moses wrote it. So I don't think that we're going to come to any sort of consensus this morning, but I'll point out a few options. Number one, the sons of God may refer to fallen angels. That's because in Job chapter 1, when the angels and Satan uh, gathers there in heaven, it says that the sons of God presented themselves before the throne of God. So, so, so historically, dating back to the 8th century B.C., scholars have believed that the sons of God were none other than fallen angels. Um, but Jesus seems to, uh, frankly, uh, undermine that entire theology because he says that angels can't reproduce. When he teaches his disciples, uh, when he's questioned by the Sadducees, and he responds by saying that when you're in heaven, you'll be like the angels. And we pointed out last week in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14 that angels can't reproduce. Satan's not reproducing himself. So that leads to maybe perhaps a second, which is that they were tyrannical rulers that were demon-possessed. Seems to make sense that these were um, rulers, mighty men, Nephilim, uh, giants, warriors that had, if you were, a, a sense of a harem, right? They, they, they were taking wives, 
Any they chose, they were kind of just gobbling up all the women into their harems and ruling wickedly over them. So these were sort of mighty kings that were reigning. Or perhaps, if we understand what Moses is doing here, particularly arguing that those who go the way of Cain will die, perhaps the sons of God are the righteous Sethites who are intermarrying with the wicked line of Cain, the daughters of man. In places in the Bible, we see God referring to the righteous as the sons of God. Uh, the most pinnacle example of that would be Luke. When Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus, he calls him the son of God by tracing his lineage back through the line of Seth to Adam, to God. Well, friend, it really doesn't matter what you understand these individuals to be. The point of the passage is very clear. Things are really, really bad. So regardless of where you fall on, you know, if these are fallen angels, demon possession, or Seth's children intermarrying with Cain's children, and the point of the passage is that it is so bad, God is going to annihilate all of them. In other words, humanity left alone leads to chaos. Sin is, per, is perpetuated and God must end it. This is why in verse 3, I believe God is not referring to the years of man's life, but how many more years they have until he kills them. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord God said, my spirit shall not contend with man. That's a better translation of that Hebrew word abiding. That is, I'm not going to deal with these people for very much longer. That I'm being patient for 120 more years while Noah gets the ark ready, and then it's, I'm done. Friend, it seems to point to who God is. God is a patient God. This is what Peter appeals to in his letter. He says, God is patient. He waited in the days of Noah when people were in grotesque sin. And he patiently waited, calling through the righteous one that he might save. Then in verses 5 through 8, we are told that God has a universal plan for this universal sin. You see, God is not going to play around with sinners. While God is patient, God is a judge who will judge sin. We are told in this passage that God will judge the world. And as we'll think about next week, God did judge the world through a global flood because of global sin. And friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, this passage should just be a, I pray, warning to you. That if you persist in rebellion against God, you will die. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but every human is going to die. And you're going to die. And you're going to stand before God. And you're going to answer for your rebellion against him. But if you repent of your sin, you stop doing life your way and go God's way and believe in Christ and trust in him, then you have the promise today of eternal life not death. And Christian, this morning, this passage should be a warning to us this morning that God is patient 
but that God deals with sin and sinners. And you might think you're doing a good job hiding your sin. You might think that, you know, it's just between you and your own heart, those evil things you think and the spiteful meditations you have or wherever you're struggling. But friend, God is good and he will bring you into the light kicking and screaming. So we might as well walk into the light now. Come into the light. Turn from your sin and trust. For if we go God's way, you will live. Go the way of Enoch. Walk with God and you will live eternally. Now as we conclude our thinking, how does this get us to Jesus? In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24, the author of Hebrews uses this passage to teach us the truth that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How is it that Christ's blood is greater than the death of Abel's? Because Christ's blood was sacrificial blood. Christ's blood is effectual blood. It covers sin. While Cain tried to cover up his sin, God in his glory uncovered sin by covering it. With the blood of Christ. And as Christians this morning, our hope is in this truth that God has not and will not stop until He saves sinners. Although sin abounds in our fallen world, God is still faithfully calling a people to Himself. That's what He's doing. So, brother, sister, do not grow weary. Do not. Grow discouraged. Do, do, do not allow the headlines to, to color your world. But know that God is in the business of saving sinners, even murderers. As our Savior hung on the cross in the place of a murderer. You could say that Christ is a type of Seth. But even more, he's a type of Cain. As he was the one who died to cover the sins of those who sinned against him. Friend, which way will you go? Will you go the way of Cain and end in death? Or will you go God's way? The way of Seth, the way of Enoch, the way of Christ? And live eternally. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we would know you better through your word. Uh, Lord, we trust there are much more that we could have thought about in this particular passage and studied and pray that we would benefit from that. Father, we pray that we would see the way forward. Lord, awaken our eyes. If we are walking in sin, may you call us to righteousness and faith in Christ today. For your glory and our eternal good in Christ, we pray.